It's Thursday, October 12th, 2023 from Peach Fish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The Biden administration has agreed to freeze the $6 billion Iran had gained access to as part of the prisoner swap deal between the administration and Tehran. This was, as you'll recall from our discussion on Tuesday, a prominent talking point of critics of the Biden administration. And in contrast to cavils about Biden putting a lid on press availability or having a barbecue, it was a somewhat legitimate critique or legitimate enough for the administration to take the short-term hit of appearing to concede the point of the critics. But another way to look at this is, well, I was speaking to a former Senate staffer and he asked me if I thought the U.S. or Israel with the U.S.'s approval might expand the current fight into Iran. And I said, well, I don't know. I don't have a direct line to the Pentagon, and I can only be quoted as a source unfamiliar with Bibi Netanyahu's thinking. But it would be pretty strange, inconsistent, and hard to defend if on the one hand, the U.S. were bombing Iran, and on the other hand, the U.S. were paying Iran. Harder to defend than even the Natanz nuclear facility like a slice of the Zagros Mountains, that is a deep cut. Or the decision to freeze the funds could be, as my guest contends, simply prudent and not worth the hassle of trying to justify the funds over and over again. In any case, it is actually good that the administration showed nimbleness. They know they will be pilloried as a weak or mealy-mouthed group of actors. Who cares? They're now in a better position than they were yesterday, And Iran is, I think, in a bit worse of a position. Also, the prisoners have been exchanged. Declare victory, go home, and maybe someday down the road, let the Qataris move around some funds in a jointly owned account co-signed by an Ayatollah. On the show today, the seeming achievements in the Dallas Public Schools advanced math classes. But first, what is to come in the conflict between Israel and Hamas We talk next to Stephen Simon, who served on the National Security Staff as Senior Director for Middle Eastern and North African Affairs from 2011 to 2012. He is a former State Department official, and he has worked for RAND and is now with the Quincy Institute. Stephen Simon up next. And joining me now is Stephen Simon. He's an expert on Middle East matters. He served in both the Obama and Clinton administration. He is now with the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. Uh, Remember a few months ago, he was on to talk about his new book, The Rise and Fall of American Ambition in the Middle East. Mr. Simon, welcome back to The Gist. Well, thank you for having me again. Appreciate it. So Israel is certainly pursuing a ground war in Gaza. Benjamin Netanyahu has vowed to destroy Hamas. Quote, every Hamas member is a dead man. Good quote. But I think literally speaking, impossible. The leaders aren't even in Gaza. So the first question is, how far can Israel go in achieving that aim? Well, I think they can actually go pretty far. Uh, It depends on the cost they're willing to pay uh, to do that. But they have the capacity uh, to do it. Uh, It requires going in on the ground uh, with a major incursion and uh, rooting people out of their uh, hiding places uh, as they discover them via intelligence means. So, yes, it's in the realm of possibility. Uh, Do they really want to go that far? Open question. Yeah. And will that 
serve the ultimate strategic aim, which is not just upsetting and destroying this organization, but truly setting back the cause of inflicting damage and death on the Israeli civilian population. Well, I think it's hard to... <laughs> it's so awful. I mean, I, I, think, it, I think it's hard uh, actually to identify a strategic objective. I mean, a, a strategic objective uh, would entail uh, dealing once and for all uh, with uh, this difficult situation that has evolved over the course of decades, uh, namely the unresolved uh, competition of uh, uh, Israelis and Palestinians for land, uh, you know, between the Jordan River and, and Israel and, and, and the Mediterranean. Mm -hmm. That would be a strategic objective. Okay, so uh, to give you an example, because I just think it's worth doing, so I'm going to take 10 seconds. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. The, the Arabs and Israelis fought uh, a tremendous war in 1973. It was a really bloody, and it killed uh, at least twice as many Israelis as the current conflict has killed. But it was swiftly uh, turned into uh, a diplomatic process that ultimately led uh, to a peace agreement, peace treaty between Egypt and Israel. Okay, and and Egypt was Israel's main military challenger on the ground. Okay, that was a strategic objective. You get a peace treaty uh, with uh, with your enemy. You turn them into a friend or at least a non-belligerent, and then um, you've dealt with a major threat to your security for the foreseeable future. Right now, we're not really looking at the uh, establishment of a strategic objective to mm -hmm. which the Israelis and, and maybe the Arabs uh, are, are striving. Right. That's not there. Well, I don't know if it's easier. It certainly seemed impossible to achieve that objective that was achieved, of course, at a great cost, the assassinations of the signatories of the Camp David Accords. But in that case, you're at least dealing with nation states. This is different. Yes, I know, we both know that Hamas years ago was elected as the representative of Gaza and then elections stopped happening. Uh, polls, and they haven't been done in a while, indicate that they're extremely unpopular among Gazans. I don't know if uh, their popularity will have gone up and down. I mean, is a strategic objective even possible when you're dealing with this quasi-terrorist, quasi-nationalist force? Uh, that's a fair question. And no, I, I would say that not right now. I, that's that's pretty clear. Uh, and in fact, you know, it's been remarked on quite frequently in recent days in Israel that, um, and and actually conceded by the right wing um, uh, leadership in Israel, that Hamas has always been a great partner mm -hmm. uh, for uh, for the Israelis, because uh, the Israelis and 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 Hamas share. I guess you could say a strategic objective in the sense that each one seeks the elimination of the other. <laughs> They're pretty clear on that, right? Yeah. And, yeah. and the thing is, is, as long as Hamas held that position, uh, it, it essentially justified um, Israeli, uh, uh, you know, the Israeli agenda vis-a-vis uh, -vis the Palestinians. So it was really convenient. Uh, and uh, in fact, one of uh, the, one of the leaders of the right wing opposition said, "You know, the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank, 
it's a burden. Hamas, an asset. Mm-hmm. He said that. Yeah. Um, you know, so uh, there's been a, a perverse convergence of interests, which which periodically collapses. Um, and at least, you know, in the years since 2005, when Israeli troops and settlers and so forth left Gaza um, and uh, leaving it uh, to uh, uh, essentially to Hamas, which in, which itself was originally supported um, uh, by uh, by Israel as as a, as an alternative uh, to the um, the West Bank Palestinian leadership. Yeah. So um, anyway, that's collapsed, uh, and and the Israelis are under a lot of pressure now, internal internal pressure, to deal with this situation in some decisive way, uh, and and they have. I think a lot of support on that score um, uh, in the United States. I mean, even uh, Barack Obama uh, tweeted the other day uh, that um, he favored the the quote unquote dismantling of Hus. Okay, so that's Barack Obama. Yeah. Um, so you can imagine where the Israeli leadership is, and I, and there's probably some sympathy uh, for this objective within the Biden administration. Uh, but again, uh, you know, it comes down uh, to the cost. I mean, there's a sweet spot on yes. the on the timeline here that that the United States, uh, you know, frequently uh, looks to occupy, mm-hmm. and uh, that sweet spot it's on the timeline, and 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 it's you know up to that sweet spot, the United States will provide uh, diplomatic cover for the Israelis to do what it is they think they need to do mm-hmm. uh, in Gaza operationally you know, on the ground or from the air or what have you. Um, But beyond that sweet spot, it becomes too costly diplomatically for the United States and and really for Israel uh, to continue these operations, which tend to be highly destructive because it's urban terrain. Right. So the casualties are really going to be terrible, as we've already seen. So So, right. So you say timeline. Is the constraint temporal or is it more in terms of uh, the images and realities coming out into the world of what the costs are? Well, I think, you know, they're they're both uh, sides of the same coin because the longer this goes on, the more destructive uh, it is. And, you know, people would be looking really at three factors. Uh, uh, Overall, uh, the civilian toll, which will climb rapidly. And then uh, in, in a way, subsets of that larger consideration are infrastructural damage, which is gonna be really bad. Um, and it's not just the buildings that are destroyed, but it's everything underneath the street. Mm-hmm. So water pipes, sewage pipes, um, uh, electronic, uh, you know, electric transmission cables, all that sort of stuff uh, just, gets, just gets torn up. And that in turn relates uh, to this uh, third consideration, which is public health. So you'll wind up quickly, um, relatively quickly with a public health catastrophe uh, in Gaza um, because nobody will have access to clean water. There'll be sewage floating in the streets. Uh, You know, typhoid will become a problem. And and some of these, you know, illnesses that, um, you know, are are connected uh, to... um, uh, to uh, failed sanitation systems. Yeah, I was thinking about that specifically. I understand it, it, it's war, and I understand the argument from a military standpoint of 
uh, denying energy to the area. Food is a little, I, I suppose, with food shipments, arms could be shipped in. That's a little more questionable. But water, to me, is there a real military advantage beyond, I suppose, if the combatants have no water, along with all two million other citizens? There's something to that. But have you thought specifically about the water component to the embargo? Well, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a lawyer, but... Um... Uh, you know, the, the rules of war are kind of flexible on this point, because one of the, um, there are a number of considerations that a, that a lawyer would point to. Um, uh, in a, one of them would be proportionality, of course. Um, but there is another, which they call necessity, military necessity. And I think what the Israelis would argue is that they're on solid ground in terms of the rules of law, because, uh, you cannot conduct a campaign in Gaza against Hamas without uh, civilian casualties, without without killing non-combatants, and that's that's military necessity. They would say, and and mm -hmm. if we could do it some other way, uh, we'll we would do it some other way. But the fact is, we can't. You got two million people crammed into a space, uh, you know, just double the size of Washington D.C. It's pretty small. It's it's immensely densely populated. And if you've if you've seen the uh, the aerial footage of Gaza, you can see it's it, every inch of it is built up. Yeah. So there's no way to carry out strikes without killing civilians. So that's what they would say. Um, uh, you know, other other countries and other and 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 other legal interpretations of the rules of war might take issue with with Israel's uh, position on this. But the Israelis will say, uh, you know, we we haven't transgressed. Yeah, what are the costs? What are the benefits? Something to think about. But overall, the rules of engagement are going to be much less restrained than they were in the past. But the question is, how far is too far in terms of the Israelis' own self-interest? And then there's another question, which is, what should be the U.S. role in getting them to realize that? But let's go in order. You know, there is a point that is too far in terms of the Israelis' own self-interest in terms of the cost that they are imposing on the Gazans, do you think they recognize this? Oh, absolutely. And if you're wondering why they haven't gone in on the ground yet, there's your answer. Uh, it's not clear. Uh, and, and there's an additional factor you didn't, you didn't mention, but I'm sure it's, it's on your mind, uh, and that's the hostages. Yes. Um, you know, there are at least 150 hostages uh, in Gaza. Uh, the uh, uh, Hamas has threatened to start killing them if the Israelis go in on the ground. Uh, uh, maybe a dozen of those hostages are U.S. citizens and therefore a concern to the Biden administration uh, and, and undoubtedly um, uh, accounted for in talking points that Blinken, uh, that Secretary of State Tony Blinken is using with Netanyahu today. Um, so uh, the Israelis have to first consider, okay, what happens to these hostages? And there's now underway already negotiations over the fate of the hostages. The Germans are involved. Um, uh, the Qataris are involved. Uh, there's, there's a process going on. Um, well, who knows, you know, how successful it'll be or how many hostages will be released and in turn for, uh, for what actions by Israel, don't know, but there's a process. So the Israelis have to be considering that. And they need to be considering uh, escalation and a broadening of the conflict 
if they do go in and they're not really sure uh, what to do. Hezbollah is up there um, in Lebanon. Uh, the Hezbollah, he's F, uh, the leader of Hezbollah, you know, has said, we really don't want to get involved in this. You know, this is just not uh, where we want to go. But they may not feel as though they have a choice after a point if the Israelis are operating on the ground in Gaza uh, in a highly destructive way, you know, where the tempo of the violence is really, um, is really uh, bad. Right. And they need to consider um, uh, escalation on the West Bank. Uh, you know, it, 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 Jerusalem, as the Israelis, uh, you know, have, have, have wanted it to be, is a unified city. And it's a unified city that's got a lot of Palestinians and Palestinian Arabs. And you have mixed towns, you know, in Israel. Uh, that is to say, Israeli citizens, Israeli, you know, identity card uh, holders and all that. Yeah. But they're not unaffected uh, by what's going on uh, in, in Gaza. And there has been uh, serious violence uh, in those towns, not for the past couple of years, but it, it was bad, um, wow. uh, you know, in, in recent memory. So the Israelis, they have got to be thinking about all of this, uh, as well as their relations uh, with uh, Western states, whose backing they now enjoy. Right. So how far, let us say the EU, so how this would go is the EU might be first to say too far. And then at some point, the US might say too far. Will that stop them? You know, this is the, I take them at their word. This is the worst calamity they've faced. They're 9-11, however you want to phrase it. Can they really be stopped by falling out of the good graces of their patrons? Well, um, you know, the answer to that, Mike, is we'll see. Um, uh, some is Israelis uh, who, are in, who are in positions of responsibility uh, draw uh, uh, some lessons from the 2006 war that Israel fought in Lebanon against Hezbollah. Um, it's a war that Israel is generally regarded as, well, not having won, but um, uh, one in which they paid a high price, in which the, the Israeli government at that, uh, you know, at that stage paid a high price as well politically. Um, uh, and that lesson uh, is that they could have won if the United States and other countries hadn't weighed in and prevented them from completing the work that they were doing in Lebanon, mostly in terms of destroying civilian infrastructure as a way of pressuring the Lebanese to get a grip on, on Hezbollah. So they're there and, you know, these individuals are there and, and they will probably be counseling um, uh, the need to go ahead and just do this because at the end of the day, the gains will outweigh the costs. In other words, if they get rid of Hamas, then Hamas has got rid of. Um, if they alienate Europeans in the United States, well, you know, give it a few years and things will be okay again. Mm -hmm. So yes. it kind of makes sense just, just to do it. But now with this new government, um, or at least this emergency government. This unity government, yeah. Very, a few cabinet members on the same page, correct. Yeah, so well, and, and, and the, you know, Netanyahu and, and, and who's always been cautious, actually, about the use of force um, uh, himself, 
you know, the the the, the more tough-minded members of the of the war cabinet uh, have to take into account where the the former opposition, the white blue party, and general uh, former general Benny Gantz, uh, you know, are willing to tolerate. Mm-hmm. Take me inside Hezbollah's mindset as you understand them. Do they say, let us attack now because Israel is weak? Or do they say, Israel is livid, the gloves are off, we best bide our time, the costs may be too much, we'll still have our hundreds of thousands of rockets to use at a later date? What are they thinking? Yeah, so I think uh, in the first instance, they're looking at their own situation within the framework of Lebanese politics. And they're not popular there. No, and Lebanon is is rapidly devolving as a state. I mean, you know, it's econ- it doesn't even have an economy, really, except for a barter economy. Um, now, I, it's it's shocking and dismaying what's happened in that country. And the, the population... Uh, are understandably furious with the um, uh, government that allowed this disaster, economic disaster, to unfold uh, in Lebanon. And Hezbollah is blamed just as much as any of the other leading political parties. Um, and and Hezbollah is a is a more prominent factor in Lebanese politics than many of these other actors, and that just makes them more of a target for public rage. Yeah. So um, uh, do they want to start a war with Israel now that will wreck what's left of Lebanon? I, I, I think not. And not out of kindness, right? Not out of any concern for Lebanon or the Lebanese, for their own just to have their own staging ground, for instance. Yeah, I think, you know, depending upon who you spoke to, you'd get, you know, dif- different uh, uh, different answers uh, to that. But um, uh, but I think, you know, they're, they're looking right now at uh, an American aircraft carrier, a, a carrier strike group that's basically, you know, parked uh, next door to Hezbollah headquarters. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the USS... Uh, Ford has uh, an embarked wing. It's like 90 airplanes. That's more than the size of a lot of nations' air forces. Um, uh, They can, you know, their sortie rate, I mean, since they're right there, it's not like they're flying 500 miles to drop bombs and then have to fly 500 miles back. Okay, they're over the target in five minutes. They deliver their payloads. They're back on the carrier deck in another five minutes and they're reloaded and then they're back out again. How many did you say they have? 900? 90. 90. Okay. Yes. That's what I thought. Yes. 90. But by comparison, the Lebanon entire air force, I just looked it up is 68 active aircraft. Yeah. And you know, most of them are hangar queens. (laughs) That's right. Crop dusters. Yeah. So, um, you know, so they're looking at that uh, and they're looking at an Israeli call up of 300,000 soldiers, okay? Now, they might think, and certainly the Iranians like to think that, you know, especially looking at the state of Israeli politics over the past year, they might be thinking, the Israelis, ah, that country is coming apart at the seams, you know? They're no longer what they were, and look at how they failed to deal with this Hamas uh, invasion uh, in the South. Oh, you know, they're they're on the downslide. Well, 
a country on the downslide doesn't mobilize 300,000 reservists in less than 36 hours. Right. So the narrative, the narrative and why uh, Hamas is making these videos and holding up uh, the beheaded uh, remains of their victims is to give the impression that Israel is weak. Well, that might be inspirational to other Hamas fighters, but the facts and the mobilization and what we've seen with their uh, military personnel belie those Hamas assertions, you're saying. Well, yeah. And, and when Hamas pleaded uh, with Hezbollah at the outset of this conflict to join in, Hassan Nasrallah, who is the leader of, of Lebanese Hezbollah, um, sent out a very nice message wishing Hamas the best of luck. And, uh, you know, we'll, yeah. kind of, we'll see you on the other side. So the last question in the last area I want to ask about is the announcement today that the uh, funds, the $6 billion in funds for the prisoner exchange have been uh, frozen or withdrawn. Now, I know that the Biden administration was saying that all of these funds would go to humanitarian purposes. And I know that the Qataris were supposed to administer those funds. But what do you think that freezing these funds, making these funds unavailable signals from uh, the Biden administration? It it signals that they don't want this issue to suck the air out of the room in Washington. Okay. That's what it signals. Take Okay, taking it off the table is a talking point, even if they take the one-day hit of, fine, you were right, let's not even debate it. Got it. It was a sensible thing to do, I, I thought, politically. By the way, do you knowing what you know about how these things are orchestrated, what did you think of the argument that, yes, the funds are earmarked for humanitarian purposes, but ultimately funds are fungible? Yes, ultimately funds are, are fungible. But for the kinds of things that uh, Iran is doing, uh, how much money does it really need? Yeah, these things didn't take a huge amount of expenditure. It just took uh, cunning and the Israelis not paying close enough attention, I would say. Yeah, well, I, I, you know, both Israel, and it's important to say this, um, both Israeli and, and uh, American officials have said there is no evidence of Iranian involvement in the Hamas uh, assault on Israel. And the Iranian leader has said, hey, it's really a great thing. We're glad Hamas did this, but we didn't have anything to do with it. Mm -hmm. Now, okay, maybe he's saying that to avoid attack, but I, I, I think this is true. And in part, you know, there's people, people believe this, that is people believe the, the contention that um, that Iran was involved, in part because uh, they're really looking to uh, egg uh, the administration on to um, uh, hostilities with Iran. So anything that serves that purpose will be uh, will be useful. And there's also this view, it's it's which, ironically, one heard uh, you know in the wake of 9/11, that oh man. This was such a sophisticated attack, Arabs couldn't do it. Now, those, those nudniks in Gaza couldn't pull this off. And Only the wily Persians? <laughs> you, put it, you put it better than, 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 than I could have. Yes, precisely the wily Persians, mm -hmm. um, you know, you pulled it off. And I, 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 I really, I disregard that. 
Well, I appreciate your uh, insight and your time. Stephen Simon served as the National Security Council Senior Director for the Middle East and North Africa during the Obama administration, served during the Clinton administration, author of The Rise and Fall of American Ambition in the Middle East, and he's now with the Quincy Institute. Thank you again so much. Thanks very much, Mike. And now the spiel. Headline, NBC News. Latino, black, and Roman in advanced math shot up after states made this change. Should it be a model? The clear implication is yes. If you consider the subhead and the text subhead, Latino and black students in advanced math courses grew when Texas districts stopped relying on recommendations and automatically enrolled qualified students. The information, to flesh it out a little bit more, is, quote, before the pandemic, black and Hispanic students in Texas were routinely left out of advanced classes. And then the article by Suzanne Gamboa, national correspondent for NBC Latino and NBCNews.com, then she spells out what happened. Using test results from 2014 to 2015, researchers studied students whose math scores were in the top quintile, 90% to 100%, to see if they had taken Algebra 1, according to this director of the survey, And they found out that even with the same scores, it was much more likely that white and Asian students would be in advanced classes as opposed to their black and Hispanic classmates. Now, I have to say that something jumped out about that assertion. It's that the top quintile is not 90 to 100 percent. That would be the top decile. So I don't know if the error is one of math or one of language, certainly one of editing, but it did make me question the overall veracity of what was being asserted. NBC, because it was NBC, was playing the national politics angle to this story. The lead graph positions what was going on in the context of culture war education issues. It begins in a state that has passed anti-diversity laws and tried to squelch instruction on systemic racism. A new law could open doors for Latino and black children long shut out of advanced math courses. And then... Moving on from Texas, the article ends with the lines, Representative Joaquin Castro of Texas and Senator Cory Booker of New Jersey, both Democrats, are planning to introduce legislation to set up a competitive grant program for schools and districts to help them increase enrollment and performance of underrepresented students in advanced courses. Enrollment and performance. Remember that. So from what I could glean was going on, high-achieving black and Hispanic students, they weren't being put in the classes that matched their abilities, and it's because parents had to opt in. So Texas changed the law, they identified high scores, they just looked at the scores, and automatically enrolled them in these high-achieving classes, these advanced classes. So instead, they could opt out, I suppose, if they wanted to. I know a little bit about human psychology. I've read and interviewed the authors of Nudge. This seemed to be, I don't know, a no-downsides, if not solution, then experiment. The entire NBC story was a rewrite of a Dallas Morning News story, so I checked that one out. The story is about, quote, an effort to remove barriers that can stand between bright students and rigorous courses. And here are the facts, as reported in the Dallas Morning News. In 2018, prior to the new policy, 17% of black students in sixth grade and a third of Hispanic students were in honors math. 
half of white students. Now, 43% of black students are in honors math. Nearly six in 10 Hispanic students are. The percentage of white sixth graders in honors math has also gone up to roughly 82%. I checked out the demographics of the Dallas Independent School District. That's what those statistics we're talking about. It's 70% Hispanic, 21.4% black, and 6% white. Utilizing my very high decile status as a math guy, I calculated that most of the eighth graders in the Dallas Independent School District are now in advanced math. Well, wonderful. It would certainly be a shame if these advanced students were denied that status. The article talks about remedying the wrong of past discrimination and disparate impacts and ends with this hopeful note. The payoff may be years away when current Dallas students win high-paying jobs in STEM fields. But one thing never gets answered. Is it working? Sure, it's working if you define working as defining the majority of eighth graders as advanced, but has the, quote, more rigorous instruction paid off? I won't make you wait. The answer is no. In three words, not even close. Though the article doesn't offer the relevant statistics to evaluate the program, they're out there. I looked up the National Assessment of Education Progress, often called the Nation's Report Card. In fact, that is the exact phrase prominently on their website, quote, often called the Nation's Report Card. These Dallas 8th graders, more often than not, in advanced classes are scoring 260. Okay, that's meaningless until you know that the level defined as basic is 262. It's not fair to compare the results in large urban school districts like Dallas to dissimilar districts, so they helpfully have the comparison to other large urban school districts, and Dallas, with its mostly advanced 8th graders, is 6 points below the average of other large school districts. Only 47% of Dallas students in 8th grade are at the basic achievement level, 12% are at or above the proficient level, and those deemed advanced nationally to match the advanced label of their math classes, it's 2% in Dallas. Before this change, but also before the pandemic, it was 4%. So those statistics are from the nation's report card in 2022. I found more recent one statistics just from the state in 2023. It uses the Texas state metric of at grade level. And it says that in Dallas, eighth graders 48% met grade level in reading, and 40%, met grade level in math. But it was only 36% in math last year. So that is an improvement. Another positive sign is that the gap between Dallas and other large districts in math on the nation's report card narrowed in 2022 as compared to 2019, 2019 being the year of the pandemic, but perhaps a reason that Dallas schools didn't suffer as much is that they weren't shut down for as long as Chicago, New York, LA, some other large school districts. So I would say maybe there's some benefit to telling kids you're advanced and telling more kids of different races, you're all advanced. But other than changing the demographics of the classes labeled advanced, it seems to be having no effect on actual advancement in Dallas. You wouldn't know this from the coverage. You would think the opposite. And of course, it won't occur to most people to know otherwise because they're not in the top decile of quality podcast information. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the producer of The Gist. 
Joel Patterson's the senior producer. Michelle Pesca is CLFAO of Peachfish Productions. See how that rolls off the tongue and squishes under the foot. The gist is presented along with our partners at Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. Would you like to advertise on the gist and reach our highly educated about Dallas 8th grade math audience? Go to advertisecast.com slash the gist. Oopru, jeepru, dooperu, and thanks for listening.